With the violent crime rate continuing to rise across the United States, an interesting debate has arisen. How important is self-defense in today's society? For some context and comparison, let's consider these statistics from Statista. In 2021, the violent crime rate in the United States was 395.7 cases per 100,000 of our population. And even though the violent crime rate has been decreasing steadily since 1990 in America, the United States still ranks among the top countries as it relates to having people in prison. Joseph Malone knows a thing or two about self-defense and the importance it can hold for protecting families, communities, women, and children at large. Malone is the CEO and founder of Southern Cross Safety Academy, which is a personal safety and training company which provides life-saving mindset and skills training to private citizens and corporations. Malone says that his main objective is to give people the skills and necessary knowledge which they need to keep themselves and their loved ones safe from violent crime. With those skills, Malone is hoping that people develop plenty of purpose, identify some of their negative habits. They also provide some nutritional and exercise resources, coupled with financial planning and group coaching calls, all in an effort to help people level up in their personal, professional, and lives, and providing them the safety mechanisms needed to thrive through adversity. Malone says in order to have true confidence, one must be confident in their ability to defend their personal and family turf. Malone is a former Special Operations Marine who gave 13 years of his life to the Marine Corps and he was deployed seven times all over the world in defense of his country. He says after he left the military, he had really severe survivor's guilt and depression. He spent a stint completely broke and living out of his truck after losing all of his money through high-risk trading. But now he's back on his feet and he wants to tell others how they can remain safe, vibrant, and confident in their self-defense skills. And he joined me this week to tell me more. 
I'm Kevin McChan. Let's have this conversation. Thank you so much for having me, brother. Absolutely. So, uh, Joseph, I know that you run the Southern Cross uh, Safety Academy, and it's all about helping uh, corporate uh, leaders and other private citizens become more safer. So I'm wondering if you can tell me all about the great work that you do and what makes you so fabulous, my friend. Well, thank you very much. That's very kind of you. So... I'm a former special operations Marine and I got out of the military a couple of years ago and I wanted to provide some sort of impact. I, I knew I wouldn't be a good employee because I'm always marching to the beat of my own drum, if you will. And so I, I learned how to start my own company. I was dealing with a lot of depression at the time, a lot of mindset and belief issues. Uh, I was very, very depressed, very suicidal. Ended up learning a lot about neurology uh, and, and the mind and quantum physics in this period, this time span, where I was creating a company to provide active shooter training, active shooter response, specifically for schools and for police stations, because I, I saw that they needed help with that. And that was you know, something that I've lived in active shooter environments, being in the special operations teams and knowing how to respond tactically, of course, is a very large part of our lifestyle and our, our training cycle and our mission set. And so I got out thinking everybody was going to accept me with open arms and want to get all this great training from me based off my experience. And that just wasn't the case. In fact, I've talked to 57 schools since I left the military. Only one has actually done work with me. Uh, and I've talked to quite a few police stations and none of them have really done any work with me in terms of tactics. So I've started to kind of readjust my business model. And I work a lot with corporations, with uh, workplace violence prevention, prevention, a very specific thing, but also response and emergency planning. And then I, I work a lot with private citizens as well in terms of mindset and belief system development, helping people accomplish their goals, set goals, uh, work their way out of depression, and ultimately be lethal. It's, it's very important that people are capable of great lethality if they want to preserve great peace. And it doesn't mean that they go around flaunting it. It just means that if the situation ever came pushed to shove, if somebody ever tried to hurt them or their family unjustly, they would be capable of defending themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Just about, we can just ask you about the sense of empowerment that you give people and a sort, of, sort of the rewarding factor of the work that you do in giving people the empowerment, the empowerment and the skills and tools to be able to defend themselves because it's an important skill to have, isn't it? Yeah, it's actually the most needed uh, skill. That's the most basic necessity in life. When you look at the life necessities, safety and security is the number one thing that every living organism needs in order to drink water, eat food, have a family, provide some sort of sustenance, even love, and even think creatively. We can't think creatively 
as humans, unless we have safety and security, because that part of the brain always takes over when we're in danger. Think about it. If you're walking around in the woods and all of a sudden a grizzly bear jumps out at you, you're not solving world problems at that point. You're solving your own problem of survival and how to get away from that grizzly bear. So the way that I break it down is we, we always start with the mind and the way people talk to themselves and their own internal belief systems because the way we talk to ourselves is absolutely important we hear our own voice more than anything else in the world and so if we have negative self-talk then we have negative beliefs and so we'll have negative poor actions and then next is the way that we uh, nourish ourselves the information that we receive the things we read the way that we talk the, the food that we eat the way that we treat our body we need to be physically capable in order to live happy successful lives and then lastly we work on the skill sets where we're going into de-escalation training situational awareness very scientific and then ultimately things like firearms training yeah absolutely and uh joseph i'm gonna share just a, a quick story about myself so uh buddy as i, I shared with you before we started re recording i was born with what's called uh, spastic quadriplegia uh, cerebral palsy simply means that I don't have enough oxygen in my legs to walk normally. And you know, Joseph, I actually found out at the age of nine, my friend, that I wouldn't be able to walk without assistance uh, for the duration of my life because of the severity of my cerebral palsy. But I tell myself every day that. Uh, you know, uh, we're all given a deck of cards in life, and it's coming upon all of us to sort of stack them in, in the direction of or the purpose that we want for our own individual life. And I share that story with you because I'm curious to get your thoughts on the concept of resilience and overcoming, obstac overcoming obstacles based on uh, your your time with the Marines and living your own personal life. How do you view the concept of resilience? I view it so strongly that you just gave me goosebumps right there when you, when you asked me that question. I think that the ability to face um, adversity and to not just face it, but really to thrive through it and come out on top is one of the most important things that somebody needs to know how to do. And it really goes back to that, that lethality piece. Every single day of my life, I inflict adversity on myself. I wake up very early, about 2.30 to 3 a.m. every single day. I take a freezing cold shower. First thing that I do, I wake up, out of bed, boom, right to the shower. I'm not looking at my phone. I'm not doing anything else. I'm going straight into that freezing cold water because I'm forcing my mind and my body, hey, if I say something, I'm going to do it. So you go and you do it now. That's some serious adversity. My wife thought I was a psychopath when we first started getting together. She's like, you do this every single day? I'm like, absolutely. Then I go and I kill myself at the gym physically. It's very important that we begin to train ourselves every single day at the start of our day to deal with difficult tasks. Because if we have the ability to deal with difficult tasks, then we have the ability to succeed and elevate ourselves throughout life. If we don't, which is a big problem that we have in America, a big problem that's going on in Canada, really a lot of these established nations have become so soft and so luxurious and so comfort oriented. And, and don't get me wrong, all, all, I get it, right? We don't want to be living in the woods. We've developed these societies and these technologies into what they are. But the unexpected consequence to that is human beings are becoming very soft. 
Human beings have zero emotional control. They're, you know, losing the ability to deal with any sort of adversity. You're seeing all these active shooters, people emotionally erratic, incapable of dealing with any sort of adversity whatsoever. And so even on the violent crime side, when people go on the streets and they think, oh, I'm going to do what I want because I'm a man and I'm going to do what I want. I'll do whatever I want. That doesn't make somebody a man. What makes somebody a man is doing what one must do for the betterment of mankind. Going around and flaunting yourself and beating up old ladies does not make you a man. Putting a gun in somebody's face doesn't make you a man. Having control over your emotions and doing what you know is required based off your conscience, letting your conscience be your guideline, that is what makes you a man. And so having the ability to face and thrive through and past adversity to build strength in that time of pain is absolutely imperative. It's one of the most important things in any human being's life. Yeah, and, and Joseph, based on your experience in the military and building teams and sort of camaraderie. I'm fascinated to ask you whether you think America is broken in this sense. You know, you turn on the news or you have conversations with certain groups of people, you know, based on personal experience and living with a disability. Sometimes, you know, people become very territorial if you don't agree agree with their sort of opinion in life on how they view the world. So I'm curious to ask you whether you think our societal ability to have conversation and compromise has been compromised for a lack of a better word, word and coming come to sort of a better sense of unity in the world. Well, why do you think we've lost the ability to communicate, communicate and still disagree with each other at the same time? Yeah, that's a really great question. And, and I honestly do think that it ties right back to your previous one with the inability for people to face any sort of adversity these days. When we look at the, so I just had a, a podcast with a teacher, a woman who's a former inner city teacher. She's a black woman and she quit teaching because of all the victimization that she was forced to teach these kids coming up and all this uh, diversity, equality, inclusion, legislation that's being pushed out on onto people. And I, man, I've got friends of all races, all colors. I, you know, I, I love culture, but I don't, I don't judge somebody by the color of their skin. I judge them solely by the content of their character, just like Martin Luther King says. And what I've noticed is that, and this, and she agrees with me, big reason why she quit teaching is that Kids are being taught based off the color of their skin that they're victims and that based off the color of their skin, they're oppressive. Even though these kids have no idea why they're being taught this information, that's what they're being taught. Now, don't get me wrong. Lots of issues in society. I get that. But by no means does that entitle anybody to be either an oppressor or an oppressee. That doesn't entitle anybody to have a sense of victimhood just simply because you're white, black, brown, you know, Mexican, you know, African, Caribbean, whatever, it doesn't matter. But what we're doing is we're encouraging people to be a victim. It's like a badge of honor almost. 
And throughout that victimhood, as the kid grows older, they become more entitled. And with that sense of entitlement comes emotional erraticism. With that emotional erraticism comes the inability to conform to societal norms or to be a positively contributing member to society. Because it's almost like the more erratic, more emotionally erratic you are, then the more of a victim you are. The more of a victim you are, the more entitled you feel. The more entitled you feel, then the less you're allowing anybody else to uh, impose upon your way of life and your, your perceptions. Even though nobody's imposing, that's what people are believing it to be. And so I think that we just need to take a, a, a really big hard pause on this whole like restitution, victimization mentality. Stop promoting people on the color of their skin. Stop dividing us based off the color of our skin. And we need to start kind of being harder on these kids. These kids are growing up way too soft, way emotionally erratic, out of control. And we need to stop being so kind to them. And then here's really where like the lethality piece comes into adulthood. When you're a kid, they say, if you don't get any fights, go get the teacher. Well, there are no teachers when you're an adult. When an armed criminal puts a gun to your face and they now are deciding to shoot you or keep you alive to keep take your money, there's nobody else you could run to in that absolute moment. You are your first responder. And so if society has the ability to defend themselves, each individual and one another with great and lethal justified deadly force, then less people are going to want to be criminals because it's not going to be as lucrative. And they're going to realize really quickly that they're not as entitled as they thought they could be. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, based on your life experience and your professional experience, Joe, I'm also curious to ask you how do you define elite leadership and what do you think makes an elite leader? Yeah, that's an awesome question. I, I love talking about leadership. So what makes a great leader is one's ability to influence others towards the progressive realization of a worthy ideal. And they must lead by example. And so what I mean by that is you must have a justified goal, a morally sound goal, one that positively contributes to the growth of those around you, because you're never manipulating people as a leader. Manipulating people does not empower them. It does not educate them. It does not leave them better. Manipulation is a negative context, but empowering people with education, knowledge, and skill and a worthy ideal, that justified goal that positively contributes to society, that right there is somebody who's a great leader when you're capable of influencing them, illustrating the big picture, and then showing them. You must show people as a leader exactly what it is that you expect of them. And then eventually, people will understand you and respect you enough to where they will start to make those assumptions for you because they know, hey, this is how Kevin likes to behave. I know that this is what he's going to want to accomplish. So we're just going to go ahead and take that reins for him. And then when you could step back and when you could be completely absent or when you could die or when you could, you know, go off for a month and then come back and your program is running, your company is running seamlessly. That's how you know. That's how you could measure your own efficacy as a leader. Yeah. And I know, uh, Joe, that you're a, a published author. You wrote a woman's safety guide. And arms to train over one million uh, citizens to uh, their personal uh, safety and awareness. So I'm wondering, my friend, if you can tell me about the book, what it's all about, and what inspired you to write it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's at, and that's it right there, too, over my shoulder is the the women's safety guide, how to prevent trouble before it happens. I was doing a corporate conflict de-escalation training event for uh, a client of mine in the Chicago area. And this day, 
it happened to all be women, one man and about 20 women were in this course. And my training is all very interactive. It's not me just talking about PowerPoint. We're sharing experiences, stories, we're role playing. We're going through these scenarios and these situations so you can get an idea of what it's like to perform said task in these stressful situations. What I noticed was every woman in the room had shared multiple experiences of how they had either been assaulted or intimidated or groped or you know even worse in some cases. And I took a moment, I paused and, and I kind of asked and they all raised their hand. And that's when I knew I had to do something specific for women. I come from a family dominated from for the female demographic. My brother and I are the only two males. I have 13 female cousins, aunts. Um, you know, I have a, an uncle or two, but you know, I grew up with nothing but women outside of my brother and me. And so in essence of that, I got with a local politician. We put on this huge women's safety event. About 200 women showed up. And quite honestly, I totally bombed it, man. Um, I did not do very good presenting. It was the worst presentation I think I've ever done in my life. And I was so upset with myself that I failed to hit the mark to give these women value and personal safety. I went home and I spent the next four days literally writing the women's safety guide to find a way to communicate the points to everybody. And so it really wasn't a failure. It was definitely a stumbling block, but one that I think was, uh, was, was well worth it. And so that's where the book comes from. We talk about awareness. We talk about what happens in the brain and in the body when we get scared. And then we talk about how to be definitive and knowing when somebody's trying to harm you before they actually do. Because the biggest thing I see with men and women, but but predominantly with women, is that they could be getting assaulted and still think that they're making a big deal out of, out of yelling or screaming or kicking or crying. And the goal of the book is to confirm in their minds, with, without any shadow of a doubt, this person is beginning to cross the line before they actually do cross the line. You're not being crazy. This is what you need to do off based off of X, Y, and Z. They're the one who is inappropriate. That's the main goal of the book. Absolutely. And uh, Joe, my next question has to tap into your Homeland Security knowledge because I know that you've got a, a bachelor's degree in Homeland Security and emergency management is based off of your time in the service as well, my friend. I'm curious to ask your opinion on where the like America stands in the world today from an international perspective in terms of perception, safety, and the like. So where, where do you think America stands in the world today? I don't think it's good. Um, I, but at the same time, I do think it's good. It's not as good as it has been historically. But I think at the same time, it's better than it has been historically. And what I mean by that is... I don't like the fact, and this is a big reason I got out of the military, I don't like the fact that America is involved in so many different foreign conflicts. I don't like the fact that America spends a lot of money, resources, and life dealing with other people's internal affairs, if you will. However, at the same time, I've talked to a lot of refugees, a lot of people who have left communist nations, who've left literal oppression and genocide out of Africa. And I've talked to a lot of people who are striving to get to the United States. Why? Because the United States stands as a beacon of hope. It stands as a beacon of light to the people who are oppressed in these other nations due to either, you know, defaulted governments or corruption or just general lack of any sort of government stability whatsoever. 
America rests in the mind and in the eyes of a lot of people as a place where they can go and find peace and solace. Now, at the same time, America right now is quite in a weird state of disarray. And, and I think that a lot of that has to do with our enemies' external influence psychologically within our nation, within our culture. I think we have a lot of corrupt politicians and we need a seriously clean house. I don't think there should be anybody in politics for 40 plus years ever. I think that that's insane. I think that that's just asking for corruption based off what I've seen in all these other nations that I've been to. But I, I think America is also not doomed. A lot of people talk about how America's doomed, how America's screwed, it's never going to go back. And I don't think we're there yet. I think we're in a, a trying time right now, a troubling time. I don't know if our world currency will remain to be the, the top dog over the next 10, 15 years. But honestly, I really don't even care too much about that. What I really care about is the American values of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and each individual having the right to pursue freedoms, uh, as long as they're not harming another human being. I think we still got a lot of hope left for that. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Joe, I also know that you're uh, a nationally registered and certified EMC, and you're also trained in forensics and uh, uh, National Rescue Divers. Well, my friends, so I'm curious to ask you about the importance of being diversely trained in all of those areas and, and the value that it brings to you to train other people and also have those trainings in your back pocket. So how valuable is it that you're trained in so many diverse areas? Yes, I, I think it's incredibly valuable. I try to be as well-rounded as I can. Uh, I, I don't want to be capable of too many different things and then in, and then like basically competent in none. Uh, you know, there's a saying in the Marine Corps, jack of all trades, a master of none. I don't really like that. I, I want to be masterful in many trades as much as I can. And with the, the medical piece, uh, you know, all of it has to do with high stress situations and government and politics and criminal behavior. And so I think that they all support one another. Knowing what criminal networks are doing in terms of the mobile forensics acquisition, I think that's really important. Knowing how we get tracked by social media, by technology companies, by our own government, by other governments, I think that that's critical. And that was exactly what I was doing when I was doing the mobile forensics work. Uh, helping rescue kids with the Internet Internet uh, Crimes Against Children Task Force. You know, I always want to protect children as much as possible, especially against human trafficking, which if you haven't seen the movie Sound of Freedom, I highly recommend that you do. It's very, very real, very touching movie. But on the medical piece, on the security piece, the firearms, Homeland Security, emergency management, I think it's very important to be as well-rounded as possible in order to speak intelligently and then also to thrive in those high-stress situations and environments, which I've I'm very proud to say that I've lived through a lot of very stressful situations, high stakes, international incidents, life, death type of scenarios. And uh, I love it. I love being in those types of situations because it means that I'm making a pretty big impact. Yeah. And, and Joe, I know that uh, obviously firearms has been a big part of your life. And I, I know that you're uh, trained by the NRA to be a firearms instructor and you're involved in that area of your life. So I'm fascinated to ask you, what do you think uh, the role is of guns in today's society? Because, you know, so in some places we have more guns than we do people. So I, I'm fascinated to get your perspective on the role of firearms 
in uh, today's society and how they're impacting our culture at long. Yeah, and, and that's a really interesting question because in Canada, you guys have very different gun laws than we do here in the States. In fact, the States has, I think, some of the most liberal gun laws in the world. And the reason behind that, and a lot of people don't understand American history, but America is the greatest insurgency to ever exist when you think about it. Like we were the most successful guerrilla warfare campaign ever in the history of mankind. We overthrew the global power, the dominant global power, how by arming and empowering our citizens to stand up for themselves for what was right. Now, when you look at some American politicians specifically, or even some other nations, like I was talking to somebody from Australia a few days ago about this this same topic they said well, we don't have guns in australia we don't have gun violence problems in australia well you have violence problems everywhere you go no matter what and you can never disempower people into being safe you can't you just can't there's violence everywhere oh well we don't have this many shootings or whatever yeah but you also don't have 350 million people living in your nation with people flooding across the border consistently with all of the different contexts that are associated with the american culture versus other cultures it's not a gun problem it's much deeper than that i think it's a purpose-driven problem an emotional problem a lot of confusion for these young kids and young adults going back to that emotional resiliency we're not we're incapable of being resilient and, and facing adversity so what do we do we lash out in, in ways of violent behavior. So the role that guns play, it's just a tool. That's all it is. And, and when you look at these nations who are very anti-gun or these politicians who are very anti-gun, the very thing that we would do in the special operations community and in the military, this isn't just American military, this is all militaries. All militaries are sent all over the world to link up with people who are dealing with a violent or oppressive force we give them guns, we give them training, we empower them with the skill to be able to defend themselves against that violence. And so it's very hypocritical when politicians from Australia, New Zealand, Great Britain, politicians from the United States, they say, well, we need to get rid of all the guns. That's not what you're doing in the rest of the world. In the rest of the world, whenever they say we need help from your country, the first thing they do, the very first thing they do is they give them money, guns and training. So why would we not ever do that for our own citizens? A gun is only a tool. That's all it is. And as a former criminal, when I was a kid, I was never a violent criminal, but I was definitely a little punk. You know, if somebody would have pulled a gun on me or if we were going to break into somebody's garage or shed to steal some stuff, we didn't break into the homes that we knew had guns because we didn't want to get faced with that potential consequence of being shot or killed. And so if everybody is empowered with the proper skill, with the proper knowledge, with the proper tool, then they can defend themselves against that violence. And that's that's really where I see the role of guns playing in all society, in all cultures, just a tool for safety and for survival. Well, thank you for sharing that, my friend. And I'm also uh, curious to ask you, what's your definition of a personal protector? And what, what does that mean to you? And uh, then secondarily, when we look at the concept of women's empowerment, I, I'm, Fascinated with the work that you do. How do you define women's empowerment as women? Yeah, so for the personal protector, um, anybody who is willing to make the ultimate sacrifice for another human being, that is that's a somebody who I think is a personal uh protector. We must be willing to make that sacrifice for ourselves. Unfortunately, a lot of people aren't. 
A lot of people would hope that they don't get hurt or killed rather than stand up for themselves against a violent criminal or a violent act. And that comes back to that lack of ability to face adversity and resilient and having resiliency. But to be a personal protector, you must at least be willing to, to die for the betterment of that human being to protect the innocent and to protect the weak and protect the incapable. When it comes to women's empowerment, we're talking about developing a sense of self-confidence and independence. So we're increasing their ability to face that adversity, to persevere through resiliency, and to come out on top with a sense of purpose through the process. We lose confidence, sure, here and there when we go through long, enduring trials in life. But the goal is to create a sense of independence and to create the skills capable of allowing a woman to be physically independent as possible when it comes to being harmed by somebody else. When you're capable of fending off any sort of criminal, any sort of attacker, then you're capable of living a more calm, more peaceful, more joyous life, more worry-free, more present, which means that you're just having a better life. And that's the goal is we, we don't want to put people into a paranoid state. I want to help people live happier, freer, more joy, joyous lives. And it goes, it comes down to safety and security always. You need to have safety and security in order to be able to open up that part of your brain and your mind and your consciousness and be able to love and be vulnerable. I think that's really important for all human beings. So that's that's where we come from when we talk about women empowerment. We're giving them the skills and the, and the confidence and the sense of ability to live independently in terms of safety, physical, emotional, psychological safety. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, uh, Joseph, you've held many leadership roles within your life and in the service and, and the business that you run now. So on. Curious, how do you think we can cultivate a, a, a society or a culture where we create or cultivate more leaders that really want to make a measurable difference in the world? Because, you know, I always tell people, you know, uh, Joseph, people always ask me, why am I so positive and why do I want to impact people? And, and it, at least for me, the answer is simple, because I believe when you impact more people with knowledge, skills, and the ability to process information on their own, then we all uh, sort of win, win on the back end. So I'm curious, when we, look, when we look at cultivating more leaders, what do you think is the key to getting that done on a more sustainable scale? Yeah, I think it, it comes down to the emotional, the psychological resiliency and the ability to face that adversity. And it starts with self-confidence. And how do you build self-confidence? Well, you have to have the ability to keep and maintain promises to yourself and you build upon those systems and you, you develop really good habits. And as time progresses, you believe in yourself because you hold true to those promises. You hold true to that self-talk that you have to yourself. And as that compounds over the course of the years, and as you enhance and improve and seek mentorship, I think we need a lot more mentorship from successful people in this world, not just from anybody on the internet claiming to be a coach, but from people who have actually gone out, lived, attained a life result, succeeded at it, thrived at it, and now they're willing to, to share that information back to whomever might be seeking it. I think that's a really good starting point for where we're currently at. 
And I think we also need to have more fathers in the home, specifically in America. You know, the lack of fa- the, the the lack of fathers in the home, it just provides a really bad example. And historically, men were designed to be the leaders of the family because they were the ones physically capable of keeping the family safe. And I think that still rings true uh, in a lot of ways. That's not to say women can't be amazing, great, capable leaders. I've been mentored by amazing, great, capable women. The woman I was just talking to on the phone before our interview started, amazing, great, super strong, capable, leading woman who's mentoring me. But it does not take away from the fact that a fatherless home is more likely to result in a child that ends up being in jail or a violent criminal. And so having good, successful, verified mentors in place by helping the youth develop and even older people develop self-confidence through these systems, self-talk routines and accomplishments over an extended period of time, I think that really would that would bring out the leader in a lot of people. And, and not everybody wants to be a leader and that's fine too. But I think that those are some really good starting places. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Joseph, uh, I don't know if you knew this, but uh, July is actually uh, National Disability Pride Month, my friend. And one of the reasons that I wanted to start this podcast was I wanted to bring a platform to the world that really focused on, on building bridges of unity and more understanding. Because I, you know, I looked at the world before I started this podcast three and a half years ago, and I said to myself, there has to be more forces that bring us together instead of tearing us apart. So I'm curious, as we uh, come to the end of July uh, in a couple of days, I'm, I'm wondering your thoughts on the importance of celebrating uh, National Disability Pride Month and the importance of developing a more inclusive culture. How important uh, do you think that is? Yeah, I think it's I think it's very important to be inclusive of all people, all races, all colors, creeds, all that stuff. As long as they're not imposing their will unjustly upon another human being, I I think that the more we understand about other humans in a positive social context, then the more well-rounded, the more elevated we become as a society. Absolutely. And, and I would, I would really be interested to have, you know, some conversations with yourself and then some other people that I know in terms of, you know, how, how you guys would view something like this, you know, occurring like the celebratory factor of it all. And, you know, the, the inclusion piece, you know, because I'm always curious and I'm always wondering if people, whether it's because the color of your skin or because the way that somebody looks or whatever, you know, your sex, your gender. I'm always curious to know if people face a sense of prejudice because I'm a very non-prejudicial person. And so I don't ever really see that necessarily unless I'm facing it myself, which does happen sometimes when I go into the city. But I, I think it's I think it's a really great thing to always be celebratory in all areas of life. Um, absolutely. Yeah, and just because uh, you want to ask for it all, Give you a quick story. So, Joseph, I graduated journalism school in uh, 2010. I originally went to school to become a a sports reporter. And when I graduated college back in 2010, uh, and I would go on job interviews, uh, news directors would look at me at the time and say, 
to me that uh, you're a positive person with a lot of energy and enthusiasm and you would be a great asset to the news newsroom, but we couldn't hire you because we're worried about um, your disability and the uh, ability to function out into the field. So what, what happened for me, Joseph, when I ended school was I uh, interned for four years without being paid at a local television station, and it took me uh, six years out of college to convince someone, Joseph, to give me uh, my first paying job anyway, and that wasn't even in journalism. It was uh, one of the reasons I became a motivational speaker was because no one would hire me from a journalistic perspective, so I used my journalism training to turn that into advocacy in terms of advocating for uh, the hiring of folks with uh, disabilities. And my first paying job was working with the Trillium Foundation in Ontario to positive, positively uh, 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 sort of uh, promote uh, hiring folks with disabilities. So, yeah, overcoming obstacles and uh, thriving through adversity is something that I'm uh, familiar with. And if you want to have further conversations, my friend, I'm always open to that. So thank you for asking uh, the question. And my next question for you, my friend, is I'm curious to get your thoughts on the difference between uh, residing in your comfort zone versus transformational thinking, because I think there's a fundamental difference between the two, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on that as well. Yeah, that's, uh, well, one, that's, I mean, that's, uh, you know, that, that, that sucks, man, uh, you know, having to deal with that for so long. But, you know, like we've been saying this entire interview, that adversity and the, the ability to be resilient, if you were not a resilient person, if you were not a mentally, emotionally strong person, you would have let that break you. And instead, you said, no, screw that. I'm going to find a way to turn this into a strength somehow. So, so great job on doing that, man. That always, that gets me so pumped up when I hear stories like that. Sucks that you have to go through those adversities, but man, Life is adversity. There's no way anybody's ever going to get out of adversity. It doesn't matter who you are, what you look like, where you come from. You are going to face trial and tribulations. It is a guarantee in this life. It's how you deal with it and how you persevere through it and what strength you and knowledge you gain from it. That's most important. So awesome job uh, uh, doing that. When it comes to being within your a growth zone or a comfort zone, I hate comfort. I hate it consciously subconsciously i love it of course i you know i want to just sit around and eat potato chips and smoke weed and all day you know that's like such a, a you know oh it's gonna be so nice and it's just the way that our brain works our brain always wants to conserve energy it doesn't want to burn energy because it's survival based but the conscious part of my brain hates comfort and i hate comfort because i know that i'm technically dying in that state you're either growing or you're dying in life there is no stagnancy and so it is imperative that if people want to become something better, a new version of themselves, new money, new job, new relationship, whatever it is, people always try to relive the same cycle over and over again, the same thoughts, same self-talk over and over again each and every day, and they wonder why that their life isn't changing. It's because you're in your comfort zone. You must push yourself out beyond this comfort zone, the zone of death, 
this slow asphyxiation on your potential and get somewhere that makes you uncomfortable, whether it's a network meeting, whether it's in the gym, whether it's outside camping elements, it doesn't matter. The point is, is that you must always be pushing yourself into these new boundaries, these new zones that you are unfamiliar with so you can become somebody new. And then when you become somebody new, you're capable of manifesting a new life. And that is very important. Yeah, absolutely. And Joe, I'm curious, what qualities do you think that transformational people have? What, what's your definition of transformational thinking? Transformational thinking. I, I guess it would be the ability to bridge the gap between concept and reality, to bridge the gap between what is and change. So if I am a transformational thinker, then I can see an end state that nobody else can possibly see. Maybe sometimes they could also see it, but I want to be able to create something, an impact of some kind in the world. And then I want to be able to bridge the gap between where we are and where people could be if they have an interest in that. And then if it's bettering them, I want to be able to convince them that that's better for them as well. I'm not forcing on anybody. I'm just enlightening them to that sense of empowerment. I think a transformational thinker is somebody who's capable of bridging that gap between the abstract and the concrete. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, uh, I'm interested to end our conversation today, Joe, with a two-part question. And the first is, you know, I firmly believe that everyone in life is given strength and abilities to really transform the world and really put their own stamp of greatness on the world. So I'm curious to ask you, you know, I think everyone, as I said, capable of great things, but they're not always willing to do what is necessary to accomplish it. So I'm curious to ask you, what do you think people need to do to create a consistent level of greatness in their own personal and professional life? And then finally, when we look at your own personal and professional life, how do you want your legacy? I think everybody is, is born to do something great with their life. I, I completely agree with that statement 100%. I see and I've experienced myself that we do not allow pain to be our guide. We do not allow regret to be our guide. We do not allow our conscious to be our guide. Instead, what we do is we drink, we smoke, we watch pornography. We, we do anything that we can in order to escape and avoid the, the internal pains that we feel based off our regret. I think that that pain is, is a guide. It's supposed to help steer you and keep you on that narrow pathway towards your greatness. And all too often, we numb ourselves from that pain, which keeps us in a perpetual cycle of negative existence. Our brains 
Our thought patterns are always going to be default negative because of survival mechanisms in the brain. That's why we could always remember 10 million negative things, but we forget the greatest moments of our life in an instant is because our brain is designed to remember negative experiences more than positive ones. And so when we don't allow ourselves to feel the pain of the regret of our choices and to motivate ourselves, then we are losing sight of what greatness it is that we can be providing and impacting in on this world. And for myself specifically, when I was leaving the military and I was drinking myself into an absolute stupor. I mean, I was waking up on rooftops and train tracks. I was trying to kill myself. I almost did kill myself. I was not allowing the pain of my actions, the, the seeds that I have sown from my past behaviors, I was not allowing that to guide me. I was trying to block it all out and numb it all out. But when I sobered myself up and when I actually allowed myself to feel that pain and to see a vision with clarity, that's when I was able to start taking those progressive realizing steps towards that worthy ideal. And that ultimately is what's living itself out currently. And that's teaching people how to be safe against violence and violent crime, how to develop the mindset and the discipline and the lifestyle where one needs in order to, to not just survive, but thrive in any austere environment. And when people have the ability to keep themselves safe and their loved ones safe against violence and violent crime, they live more joyous, more worry-free lives. They're capable of thinking more creatively, solving more problems in the world, creating a much greater impact on life and therefore contributing much more to society. And so that's what I would like for my legacy to be is the guy who gave you the basic building blocks with your mindset, your physicality, your skill sets, so that you're able to excel in all areas of your life. Fantastic. Well, Joe, you know, I have now recorded uh, more than 750 episodes for this podcast in just under three years, my friend. And I have to tell you, you're one of, one of the best podcast interviews that I've done for the show, my friend. So I want to want to thank you for the work that you're doing. Oh, before I do that, I, I, want, I want to find out if people want to uh, get connected with you, my friend. What's the best way they can do that? Uh, yeah, uh, thank you very much. That's very nice compliment. Um, and a lot of shows, man, that's incredible. Uh, Instagram is, is where I'm most active right now. I'm trying to grow that whole uh, engagement. So Joseph underscore Malone underscore official. And then for my if people want to go check out the website at southerncross.company. Uh, company is completely spelled out. So southerncross.company is another place to find me. And I'm on Facebook and YouTube also. I got a channel up where I put a lot of safety tips. So uh, any of those platforms. Fantastic. Well, Joe, I really enjoyed our uh, comprehensive conversation about uh, safety life and everything in between, my friend. As I, I told you, your work in the space and time on my behalf is most appreciated. And I want to Thank you for being here this afternoon. Thank you, Kevin. I really appreciate it, my man.